You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 21st of November. And on the programme today, we were out and about, not in our normal studio at all. In fact, we were live from the Umalquain Fort. Now, this historical site was the seat of the rulers of Umalquain all the way through until 1969. Today, it houses the Umalquain National Museum. And specifically today, it housed all of the Arabian Radio Network's radio stations, including us here on Dubai Eye 103.8. But we didn't just talk about our warm-up to the UAE's National Day. We also brought you plenty of news, analysis and comment, including news out of the United States because hundreds of families are suing big tech companies like Meta and we discussed the case with media lawyer Alexandra Lester. We also looked into just how damaging social media is for children. That was with expert Dr. Michael Rich. With a little bit of a nod to our location, we found out a little bit more about the history of Omar Quain. That was with archaeologist Amar Ahmed Albana, who works with the Department of Tourism and Archaeology for Omar Quain. Plus, we got into our climate conversations segment. This week's topic was mitigation. For example, how can coastal cities just like Dubai and Abu Dhabi prepare for rising sea levels? We spoke to two fascinating experts, including Emirati architect Ahmad Bukash and also urban planner and blue sky thinker Baharash Bargarian, who is the CEO of Herb. And it's being dubbed the most beautiful race on earth. But where does it take place? Our motoring correspondent, Damien Reed, joined us with all the details of what he describes as his favourite race. Hello there. Good morning to you and welcome back to the programme. We are out and about, out of our normal studio today and enjoying this very clement weather from the walled garden of Umalquain Fort, which is now uh, used as a museum. We've been wandering around here for the last couple of hours exploring. Um, It's a very intriguing place. I have to say that piled up in front of me right now is is a pile of cannonballs, which isn't what normally get to look at when I'm presenting a show. There's also a traditional dow, lots of traditional nets and as you explore the sort of little rooms you get a sense of the history of the Emirates and certainly we will be getting into that in our warm-up to celebrate the UAE's National Day next week. All of our sister stations are down here around us so you might hear a few extra voices in the background as for example City and, and Virgin who are either, on either side of me broadcast as well. And this isn't the first of our OBs, the first of our outside broadcast. Tomorrow we are going to be coming to you live from Ajman as we all here on the Arabian Radio Network get to explore every single one of our fabulous Emirates ahead of that National Day celebration. But it's suffice to say we are also keeping a close eye on all the news making headlines this week. And there's a massive story coming out of the United States and it involves the big social media companies like Meta. And that is because hundreds of families are suing some of the world's biggest tech firms for allegedly exposing children to harmful products. Joining me now to talk through that case and its validity is Alexandra Lester, who's a partner who specializes in media at the law firm Clyde and Clo. Uh, Clyde and Co, I should say. Um, Alexandra, how are you doing? Lovely to have you join us on the line on Teams. Can you explain to me, first of all, what this case is all about? 
Good morning. Yes, thank you um, for having me on the show. Um, it's an interesting case. So, as you say, it's brought by a group of families and schools across the US, which all allege that social media usage is harmful to children. And they say that's done by design. So the platforms deliberately um, build in features to the platforms to make them addictive, for example, to children. And the families and, and schools are alleging that because children are still developing their impulse control, unlike adults who are in theory meant to have more control over their social media consumption, that children are particularly susceptible to harm arising from compulsive use of social media and that that's created a mental health crisis for the youth of the US. And there's some really tragic stories behind the case about um, individuals that say they were addicted to social media from a young age um, and sort of against their will was sort of served up content um, and saw damaging content on social media. And the case is brought mainly under product liability legislation. So what the claimants are saying is that there's certain defects built into these platforms by design that harm children. So addictive algorithms and the lack of proper parental controls. Um, and I should say the platforms obviously deny this and say that allegations are not true and it's uh, currently being um, determined through the courts in California. It's really an interesting case, isn't it? Because, uh, I, I mean, I, I know, don't know a great deal about it, which is why you've got you on the radio, but I immediately have quite strong feelings about it, quite strong um, views about whether or not this is accurate or not. But it really does seem to pivot on that uh, topic as whether or not the social media sites are deliberately trying to keep you on their sites, whether they're deliberately feeding you more information in order to make you want to continue to scroll, for example. I mean, this case is being brought in the United States, not in the EU or the UK or indeed in the Middle East. What does the law there say about the obligations of social media platforms? Um, so I think there's two laws that are particularly relevant to this case and that the pro platforms are relying on. And the first is that the platforms have immunity for liability for content generated by their users. So you can't hold the platforms liable for something that's not actually created by them. Um, and the other really important principle which is enshrined in law is the freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And that's protected under the First Amendment to the US Constitution. And so the platforms have been arguing that that provides them with blanket protection against all of these allegations. But a judge has recently decided some of the early issues in the case and held that th those laws actually don't provide blanket protection for the platforms. Um, so some of the defects alleged are continuing and some have been um, thrown out because the platforms are immune. So things like um, the insufficient parental controls, um, some of the allegations about rewards based on content generated by the platform are seen as things that, that do sort of hook children in deliberately and are not something that the platforms are immune from. Um, but the judge did, did hold that the, the claim that the algorithms themselves are inherently addictive by sort of serving up content based on what the users previously viewed um, and not offering a, any beginning or end to a feed the judge has actually thrown out those claims because it says she held that the platforms are actually immune from those claims. So that is a bit of a blow to the claims because 
one of the core principles of this case was the, the nature of the, the addictive nature of the platforms by design. So where it seems to be heading at the moment is um, towards needing to have more robust age verification systems and ways to allow users to um, either themselves or using parental controls to limit um, the amount of time that they spend on platforms and also to block particular types of content that they see as harmful, which may not be illegal themselves, but, but which the user themselves may feel is harmful to them and not want to see. This case feels quite important because it's calling into question that balance between the role of governments and state regulators in parenting effectively you know to what extent do children need to be protected by the state I, I mean I would argue that that maybe their parents should be the parental controls rather than the machines themselves or the sites themselves um, and, and then I suppose it brings in the, the other question of you know how do we balance freedom of speech with protecting children Yes, exactly. So it's a very hot topic and it's really hotly debated at the moment in a number of countries around the world. So as you say, on the one hand, there's the very important right to freedom of speech and freedom of expression and also the right to privacy. So um, where you're looking to regulate content on platforms, sometimes on an, on an end-to-end encrypted social messaging platform like WhatsApp, that would mean intervening in that encryption and seeing what the content is. But on the other hand, there is the need to protect the public. And I think in particular young people, and, and that's um, a principle I think most people would agree with, that um, young people and children need particular protection. Um, and I think there's not been a, a determination by the court yet, and your next guest might have more to say on this, but you know, there does seem to be some convincing evidence um, behind this case that children are more at risk of forming a harmful addiction um, because they haven't fully developed their impulse control. And the law, of course, protects children in other areas from exposure to habit forming things like smoking, for example. Um, so just taking one example in the UK um, in October, um, the UK recently enacted an online safety act and that places various obligations on social media platforms, such as to remove illegal content quickly, um, such as content promoting self-harm, preventing children from accessing harmful and age-inappropriate content. So one of the examples of, of that is um, instructions on eating disorders, which seems to have, have uh, hit the headlines in a number of really tragic cases in the UK. And enforcing age limits and age checking measures. So most platforms seem to have um, rules that they don't allow under 13s onto the platform. But uh, there, there seems to be a finding and a feeling that they don't enforce that strictly enough or have robust enough processes to make sure that that is actually complied with. Um, and as you so say, Alex, I've just got 30 seconds. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. I've just got 30 seconds left with you. And I really want to ask you whether we could see similar cases being brought in the UAE. Do you think we could see the same here? I certainly don't think we'll see class action similar to the one in the US because um, we don't have the procedural framework for that type of action. So individuals would need to start their own cases. But um, there's nothing to stop a UAE person from starting a claim in the US. Um, and also we do have very robust laws here dealing with cybercrime and digital content and the telecoms digital regulatory authority has the power to block illegal content and you can report it to them so that's probably a better route for uae based people at the moment
such interesting stuff. Alex, thank you so much. I'm sorry I spoke over you earlier. We have an ever so slight delay on the line. That is Alexandra Lester, who's a partner who specializes in media at the law firm Clyde & Co. Really grateful for your time this morning. Hello there and welcome back to the show. Really good to have you with us here. We are live out and about, as you might be able to hear, uh, from the Um Al Quain Fort. Uh, we are here in the warm-up to celebrate the UAE's National Day next week, but also taking a really close look at all the big news stories that are making headlines at the moment. And one major story is a big case, a court case that's coming out of the United States. Essentially, hundreds of families are suing the big social media companies like Meta. They're essentially accusing them of deliberately putting children at harm with their sites. But just how damaging really can social media be for children's minds? Well, we wanted to get the views of an expert. We also want to get your views, incidentally, if you'd like to send them in on 4001 or WhatsApp me on 04871 But we were keen to get the expert view as well. So Dr. Michael Rich joined us on the line a little earlier. He's over in the United States. He's the director of the Digital Wellness Lab at Boston's Children's Hospital. And I asked him if he thinks social media is addictive. No. I have directed a clinic since 2017 focused on the physical and mental and social health outcomes of the interactive media space, you know, internet writ large, as opposed to just social media, because quite frankly, social media can't be defined anymore. All media are becoming social. Gaming's becoming social. Video watching is social, et cetera. So that being said, in the six plus years that we've been running this clinic where we have seen hundreds of kids who have gone out of control with their social media, their gaming, with what we call information binging, which is endless blogs and aggregator sites, et cetera. And we have yet to see a young person who did not have an underlying psychological disorder that they were using their online activities to soothe and distract from. So we actually see what we call problematic interactive media use as a syndrome rather than a diagnosis. And that when we treat that underlying driver of those behaviors, the behaviors either are manageable, they become controllable with behavioral health methods, or they disappear completely. The real issue, I think, is not that they're using social media or how much they're using social media as how they're using social media. Through all your studies and all your patients, do you think that media companies, such as social media companies, are deliberately trying to encourage people to stay on their sites for longer? Of course, that's business for them. The longer people stay on the sites, the more money they make, the more advertising fees they can charge, et cetera. To ascribe malevolence to it or ascribe a lack of caring for their consumers, I think is an overstep at this point. First of all, because the majority of people who use their sites don't get into trouble with it. And they are, as any good business person would do, seeking to increase their business, to keep their business as healthy and sustainable as possible. From our perspective, we think that now that tech is not the latest bright, shiny thing in our world to to gravitate toward, 
that companies need to start thinking about a sustainable business plan, not just as many clicks or eyeballs or time on site as possible, but understanding that their consumers need to be cared for and they need to remain well. And so if they don't do that, they will be more akin to the tobacco companies that they have been accused of being just like. I think the problem here is that unlike tobacco, this is not a product that is toxic when used as directed, but it can be when used mindlessly or thoughtlessly. And we need to take a step back and really take a look at this with the tech companies and determine whether they are willing to make changes to their algorithms that will help their users remain healthy, safe, and empathetic to each other. I suppose at the essence of this conversation is who the responsibility of the child lies with. Are their parents responsible? Is the state responsible? Or are the social media companies responsible for what they're putting out there? We all are. Social media is it's a tool, whether it helps us, whether it harms us. We need to work together with the tech companies rather than complain about them or attack them. We need to work together with parents, with teachers, with anybody who works with kids to help our kids be better, more thoughtful, and more empathetic users of these technologies. Now, in part, that means really examining the algorithms that the social media companies use driven solely to date by the metric of business. And we need to take a broader view and say we also have a metric of human wellness that needs to be paid attention to. And if they don't, if they make the choice not to, then as I say, it'll be more akin to the tobacco companies because they know that there are problems and either they can address them, which some companies are already doing, or they choose not to care. And in that case, then it's up to us as consumers to decide whether we want to patronize them, whether we want to use their product. Food for thought there with expert Dr. Michael Rich, the director of the Digital Wellness Lab at Boston's Children's Hospital. Hello there and welcome back to the agenda. Yes, we are live from Umar Khan Fort, uh, which if you're not familiar with it, it was the seat of the rulers of Umar Khan, also the centre of government in the Emirate until 1969. Today it is housing the Umar Khan National Museum and we are here in our warm-up to celebrate the UAE's National Day next week. And we are particularly excited to be here in Umar Khan because of the rich history of the Emirate. And we wanted to find out a little bit more about that. Uh, and we're lucky enough to be joined now by an expert in the field. Amar Ahmad Albana is an archaeology specialist at the Department of Tourism and Archaeology right here in the Emirate. And he has actually joined me live here at the fort. Good to have you with us, Amar. How are you? Very good. Good morning. Very well indeed. Good to have you here. Tell me, how long have we settled in this region? How long has this region been occupied? Well, I mean... We can look at the sites that we we have and we've been excavating, and year by year we find out that we've been settling for a very, very long time. I mean, we have our uh, Christian monastery that goes back to the 5th century, but again, in Tel Abrag, we have occupations that go back 2,000, 3,000 years ago. So 
We've been chilling in the spot for a very, very long time. Have you made any exciting discoveries recently that have shown that we've been here for even longer than expected, for example? A hundred percent. Like I said, year by year, we we find out more and more. So um, in Tel Abarag, we have been discovering new and new um, occupational levels, so Bronze Age occupations. And then even on Sini Island, we have uh, the Christian monastery and settlement that goes around 2,000 years. So these are very interesting and exciting uh, excavations and finds, let me say. Were you expecting to find habitations that far back? Did, you know, was, this, was this unexpected? Were you unaware that people had been living here for so long? I mean, not entirely, because we are on the famous trade routes that go around through the Gulf on the coastlines into the open oceans. So it's very likely to find actual settlements. But it is still very exciting and we are still finding a lot of new information that keeps on adding to the to the bigger story or the bigger image of occupations in these regions. You mentioned the trade there. Yep. And I think anyone who has even the slightest knowledge of the UAE knows that originally it was a pearl trading pla- stage? 100%. And was there any other products that were being traded through this area? Definitely. I mean, looking at the natural resources that we have here, um, just the amount of pottery that we, that we find that comes from all over the world. So we do know that, like it is today, it was even 2,000 years ago a central hub that people have to stop by before embarking on their trade routes, either eastwards or even north. Wow, I mean, that is amazing to hear about how it's been a trading post for so long. Has the environment or or the climate here changed much over the centuries? Um, I think so. There is a general change, either with the actual coastlines, where the sea would have been much closer where it is now, where we have actual occupations, but big settlements do kind of um, signify that weather was better, resources were much abundant, so it was easier for people to settle where we have desert now. It might have been an oasis back then. So are archaeological digs ongoing in this area? Are you, are you kept busy? Oh, 100%. I mean, with this beautiful weather, uh, we're happy to be uh, digging out uh, in a few sites. So, um, where are they? Are they, are they kept secret? So that people don't turn up. <laughs> More or less. But we are in the usual sites that we um, we do have um, ongoing excavations, like I mentioned, Tel Labrag and um, on the island of Sinia. So uh, hopefully by the end of the season, we will have uh, exciting stuff to share. You can't see Amar's face if because you, you're listening on the radio, but there are definitely secret spots <laughs> that he's not telling us about. I can see it in this in face. Due time, in due time. Amar, it's been a great pleasure to have you join us here on Dubai Eye 103.8. Thank you very much indeed. Amar Ahmed Albana there, archaeologist and archaeology specialist at the Department of Tourism and Archaeology, right here in Omal Quain, joining us on our outside broadcast in the Emirates. Now you are listening uh, to The Agenda. We are live out and about today as we warm up to the UAE's 52nd National Day this next week. Climate Conversations on the Agenda with Dubai Holding, together for the good of tomorrow.
Hello there, welcome back to your Agenda programme. Live out and about today from the Umal Quain Fort, uh, we are here in our warm-up to celebrate the UAE's National Day next week. But it is also time here on our programme to host Climate Conversations. It is our opportunity to do a deep dive into all the hot topics from the world of sustainability. And with just over a week until the start of COP28, plenty of stories making headlines. Uh, we had our the pick of the papers uh, to choose. And we have decided to focus this week on climate mitigation. In other words, how countries, how cities should be dealing with that very fast building and far-reaching effects of climate change. It, it's interesting, you know, it only seems a few years ago that people were questioning the existence of climate change. And right now we are seeing really quite dramatic weather pattern changes. Uh, and I don't think anyone's in any doubt now about how we're all going to be impacted by those rising temperatures. And climate researchers suggest the Middle East is going to be more affected than anywhere else in the world. So what will need to change from an architectural point of view in order to make our homes cooler and more sustainable. Joining me now to discuss that topic is Emirati architect Ahmad Bukash. He's the founder of Arch Identity, also director of urban planning at the Dubai Development Authority. Ahmad, always lovely to have you join us on the radio. Tell me, how can our built environment help in the fight against climate change? You know, both by making us more comfortable, but also preventing more fossil fuels being used to, to make our homes cooler. Uh, thank you, Georgia, for always uh, hosting me and uh, allowing me to share some of my experience as the chief architect and founder at Arch Identity, as well as uh, sharing my knowledge in terms of urban planning within the city. Um, the b- basic things that we need to understand is the premise of having Uh, passive design solutions, which don't require immense um, commercial kind of uh, aspects to it. So you can easily adopt them into new developments as well as from a building level, as well as from a master planning level. So if we were to break it down into two components, let's start with the buildings. one of the major influences that we have in terms of um, energy consumption is our air conditioning systems. And I believe you're aware, and you're also in a, a project where I think showcases that kind of technology where we had um, very large kind of high walls and the buildings were actually built on the setbacks traditionally. So that would mitigate a, a kind of a microclimate in its basic premise. So uh, just by having large walls on the perimeter edge, you would automatically cast long shadows within the walkways and the streetways. Um, Another aspect for that is the wind tower. So already, uh, you know, previously in uh, previous generations, they used to live in our traditional houses without having any conditioning whatsoever. So there was kind of this vertical migration within the building. So obviously, when the weather was pleasant, uh, they would be living on the lower floors. And when it was very hot, they would live on the higher floors to, of course, to utilize the natural winds that come in from the northwest and then reverse in the evening uh, towards the sunset from the southeast. So and that funnel actually of wind was captured in a wind tower. 
These wind towers were located directly on top of bedrooms. Uh, they would be not very far from your face, only a few centimeters away, and that would it was almost like an air conditioning system in your face, but it was less of an extreme situation where we are now, where, of course, the, the blue and the cooling is much more enhanced now, but it also uses 80% of electricity. Uh, that is one of the major contributors of energy consumption. So this is only a few examples. In addition to that, obviously, we had 60 centimeter walls which were embedded with coral stones. The porous nature of those coral stones as well uh, allowed for uh, heat to escape from within the walls, as well as also collected to create uh, a cool, uh, a heating effect in the winter season. So these are just some of the examples which I mentioned, which encompass both planning and building level. Do you know, it's absolutely wonderful that I'm sitting here in Omalquain Fort listening to you describe those architectural uh, sort of differences because I can see them around me now. Massive, thick walls, uh, covered archways, lots of shadow, lots of shade. And then, of course, the trees around the outside. And we always know that it's cooler under trees than anywhere else. And, and it is great to, to hear about how they also, the coral, uh, the actual material that they use to build the walls making a difference there. Do you now see those elements being in, incorporated into modern buildings here in the UAE? I think it's very important also to look at it from a global perspective, uh, because let's just take a, a physical example of this wall, uh, where I understood that in Australia, they actually started making laser printed coral to kind of, um, you can reintegrate the coral reef, so it provides this kind of a, artificial kind of natural environment for the fish that, to breed in and kind of bring the reef back, uh, obviously, because it's it's having also some climate, uh, global climate effects over there. So um, I think it has to be kind of a hybrid solution where we use technology and we look for best practices from around the world and we adopt them to the local context because the, and we do have a lot of uh, Dubai being, uh, you know, uh, being a global melting pot for innovation and creativity and uh, enhancement in AI and technology. We are the perfect kind of uh, a pool where we can channel all these uh, unique offerings and then test them in an actual case model and see what are the win situa- win-win situations and then adopt them to uh, future developments, especially with the Dubai 2040 plan making Dubai uh, uh, the best city to live in. It's really interesting uh, how uh, advanced the plans are for Dubai. We already have a 2040 uh, plan. Um, how big a part are sustainable and, and sort of mitigation issues being wrapped into that plan? Yeah, I mean, basically, when you put the human being at the center of the equation, and less reliant on private uh, transportation in terms of car, which also is a big contributor to uh, global warming and to to CO2 emissions. So by removing that out of or or creating an alternative way of development, that in itself creates uh, a kind of, uh, you know, net zero kind of city, because obviously you need to look at shading, as you mentioned, urban design, which includes vegetation. Um, in Expo, we saw examples of bringing in the traditional idea of the fellage, which is the water 
the the little streams of water which actually create a cooled environment with shade without using kind of an exert amount of electricity to kind of create uh, mechanisms which cool the spaces. So these kinds of passive solutions have been available uh, since the UAE's foundation, even pre even in precedence to that as well. So we can borrow from all these and we can also adopt them to future planning models because you would notice that when you look for more of the kind of eye candy or something that would appeal visually, Sometimes it will come in a direct uh, collision course with something that may be more sustainable. Uh, that is not to say one is better than the other, but the point is to, that there has to be a bridging between the two concepts together. So I think that's what's important to highlight. Really interesting to speak to you there, sir. Thank you very much indeed for your time. That is Emirati architect Ahmad Bukash. He is the founder of Arc Identity and director of urban planning at Dubai Development Authority. Climate Conversations on the Agenda. With Dubai Holding, together for the good of tomorrow. Hello there, welcome back to the Agenda, live out and about from the Umal Quain Fort. Uh, here in the Emirates, we are, uh, we're very lucky, we're out and about, we're outside, we're in the historical walled garden, nicely shaded by the buildings. We were a bit worried we'd be out in the sun, uh, but we're not. And it's really interesting, a busload of tourists has just arrived to look round the fort, which now houses Umal Quain's uh, National Museum. And the reason why we're here is, uh, alongside our sister stations as well, is because we are warming up to the UAE's 52nd National Day next week. Uh, but we're also discussing the, sort of all the top news stories making headlines as well. And one of the big topics of conversation at the moment is climate mitigation. We have already, of course, started to see the effects of climate change on global weather patterns. Temperatures and sea levels are rising already. According to current statistics, many cities will be underwater within decades if the polar ice caps do indeed melt. So what can we do to mitigate ahead of that looming crisis? Joining me now is blue sky thinker and urban planner Baharash Bargarian. He is the CEO of Herb. Baharash, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Teams. Tell me uh, what approaches are actually being tried elsewhere in the world that could be applied here to make our urban planning more environmentally friendly? Well, thank you first, Georgia, for inviting me back on the show. Um, regarding your introduction, also the question, um, I think obviously right now it's a great opportunity for uh, planners, anyone who's responsible for shaping the future of cities, especially here in UAE, not just to look at what's been done elsewhere, because UAE has a very unique uh, setting. You know, It has a different challenges. Um, it's to really look within and see how we could adapt the way we are planning everything from mobility to the way we um, deal with our rising sea levels and also everything else that's challenging um, our future. And I think other cities, uh, what they've done very well, uh, especially cities in Europe, they've really focused on the people, right? The kind of things that will make their lifestyle far more livable and sustainable. So um, I always said that the landscape and the uh, that what the city has off to offer in terms of the green spaces uh, is something that is something that we could definitely learn from and how we could increase that. So right now, obviously, it's very difficult in so someone like Dubai 
for people to have an easy access to some green space, right? So you need to still travel quite a long distance. And I think there's opportunities there to rethink not just the future master plans, all these new developments that are coming um, in terms of how they're, they're planned. So essentially the plan from the, lens, from the landscape to the buildings, but also how people travel around the city itself. And I think the opportunity we have in Dubai in particular is how to create that shift, that flip in mobility away from car travel and more towards cycling and walking. And I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges that we have as a city because we are a car-centric city. So you can't just look at um, places like Amsterdam and Copenhagen because what makes them essentially a cycling city, because more than two-thirds of the residents are traveling around the city uh, using a bicycle, is that it's actually more inconvenient for people to use the car. But a place like Dubai, where it's so convenient for people to use the car because it has all the best modern infrastructures that are centered around car travel, uh, we need a slightly more entrepreneurial thinking. And I think it's a more holistic approach towards development. And I think we have the opportunity now in Dubai. And I think Dubai is best positioned to lead in so many sectors. And I think we can talk about so many things, not just to do with mobility, but even how we address uh, some of the challenges that we have with our oceans. Yeah, now one of the clever ideas that I think I'd spoken to you in the past is how to mitigate against rising sea levels. Of course, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, both coastal cities. Uh, I remember I saw one plan where you talked about creating a, uh, a fake coral reef or, or rebuilding a coral reef. Uh, and then your other idea was floating cities, both intriguing ideas for the future. I think, I think it is beyond that. It is much, much more than that. We need to first uh, almost step, step back and think of what, it is, what is it that we are building, right? And what kind of assets we want to build for the future. So it's not just let's focus on how we deal with the uh, sea level rise and the kind of mitigation strategies we need to do for, for that and how we can protect the coast. But actually, what are we doing inland? Because they're both connected, you know, a unhealthy ocean is an unhealthy city and vice versa. A healthy ocean is a healthy city as well. So uh, we need to first really rethink everything from how we approach uh, the way we build and the kind of assets that we are building and who are we really building them for, right? So it's not business as usual. It's not just let's build more assets uh, for us to sell to that uh, few percentage of people who can afford them. Uh, but also how we can use now climate change as an opportunity to create new economies. So in this case, could we now promote new types of jobs, people who will become marine biologists or people who can actually help mitigate the effects of climate change? So until we understand that there's now an opportunity to create new economies, we will not be able to think of new kinds of projects because essentially those new economies will shape those types of new projects. And as long as we continue building as we are, we'll just continue in the same uh, trajectory that we are heading towards climate change. Baharash Bargarian, a great pleasure to have you join us today. Always uh, intriguing new ways of looking at sort of rather staid subjects in many ways. So thank you so much for your time. Baharash Bargarian, the CEO of Herb, joining us here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8 for our climate conversations. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8.
Welcome back to the Agenda, live from Omal Quain National Museum here uh, in the Emirates Historical Walled Garden. Really lovely atmosphere. It's beginning to get a little bit warmer, uh, but fortunately we're shaded under the walkways. And it is really exciting for us to be out and about in our warm-up to the UAE's National Day next week. You'll be able to hear voices around me. That's because all of our sister stations here at the Arabian uh, Radio Network are touring the Emirates. Tomorrow we're going to be live from Ajman, and I'm very much looking forward to it. But we're going to take a look at a major local story making headlines now because the Roads and Transport Authority has released its travel plans for the two-week COP28 conference. Now, we don't normally get excited about travel plans, but it's fair to say that COP28 is going to have quite a big impact on Dubai. More than 70,000 delegates and visitors at least are expected to fly into the UAE for the event. And obviously, the roads are already pretty busy. So joining me now to talk about the travel plan is the man in charge. Ahmed Barrosian is the chief executive officer of the Public Transport Agency. Kind enough to take time out of his day to join us here on the agenda. Ahmed, thank you very much indeed. What is the best way for people to move around the city during COP28? Because we are expecting it to be busy, aren't we? Sure. Thank you very much, first of all, Georgia, for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, as you mentioned, this is a, a, a very important event for Dubai and for the UAE as a whole. Uh, it's a very uh, important uh, you know, event for the world as such. And uh, in any event, um, mobility is also a very critical part of the experience of the visitors and delegates. So um, we have, as you uh, correctly mentioned, put a comprehensive plan uh, of mobility solutions to allow people to reach the COP28 site at the Expo uh, easily and at the same time to move uh, freely and easily also within um, the, uh, the the venue itself. Um, so when you talk about mobility in Dubai, of course, you know you always have to start with Dubai Metro. That is uh, going to be the number one choice, hopefully, for people um, to reach the uh, COP28 site at Expo City. Um, uh, of course, the Metro is not only a driverless uh, system, but it's also a fully electric system, which very much fits the theme of smart and sustainable uh, mobility. Uh, and of course, the journey, uh, wherever it starts in the city, will end at the highly iconic, um, you know, Expo uh, uh, 2020 um, metro station. Um, so that is definitely um, the the most convenient mode, I would say, uh, to reach the venue. Of course, um, the venue has um, two main, uh, if you like, areas: the the green zone and the blue zone. The blue zone is the zone that is um, uh, available or open for uh, delegates only. Um, and that is right opposite the metro station. So people who have access to the blue zone simply step out of the metro station and they're only a few steps away from entry into the blue zone. Um, for visitors um, or, or the public uh, and companies who want to visit uh, COP28 and they only have access to the green zone, um, they can do so also, of course, by reaching the site uh, using the metro. Um, but then uh, they will have to either walk um, a short distance to reach our shuttle buses, which will be kind of moving around uh, the whole site every three to seven minutes, depending on the time of the day. Uh, or if they prefer, as the weather improves as well, to walk, uh, you know, to the uh, nearest entry, whether it's the mobility uh, entrance or the sustainability or the opportunity entrance, they can also, there are, uh, you know, very uh, well-designated and safe pathways uh, as well for them. So uh, in addition to the metro, we're also offering, of course, buses uh, and taxis. Um, so we will have a bus operation uh, that will work outside of the metro timings. I also forgot to mention that the metro timings will be extended also 
during the uh, the two-week event. So uh, the metro on all days of COP28, starting from November 30th until uh, December the 12th, the metro will operate from 5 a.m. Um, and stop operation at 1 a.m. So we have extended the timings of the uh, of the uh, metro in order to accommodate uh, the uh, visitors and delegates. Um, after 1 a.m., so between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., we are offering a bus service from the expo site into uh, key uh, stations in the city, such as the Mall of Emirates uh, station, JBR, Ibn Battuta station, um, because the blue zone is actually a 24 by 7 zone. So therefore, maybe people want to also move uh, you know, from the expo uh, to the city uh, after the closure of the uh, metro. So those buses will also be available. And as I also mentioned, we will have a shuttle bus service that operates around the clock uh, which is just kind of a circular route, which takes people from the different, um, you know, entrances uh, uh, to allow them to freely move uh, within the site itself. We also are offering, of course, taxis um, and also uh, Uber and Kareem e-hail services as well. So it's really a full range uh, of services that we are trying to offer to make it as easy as possible for people to reach the event as well as to move freely within the event. But if you ask me, of course, my recommendation would be use the metro. Are you expecting this COP28 conference to have quite a big impact on, you know, residents moving around the city as well? Do you think that we're going to see a difference in the traffic? Um, I mean, I, I don't think so, because uh, we are also passing uh, free null cards to all of the delegates of the uh, event. This is an RTA initiative to encourage the delegates to use the metro to reach the site. So we don't expect many delegates to be moving around using uh, private cars. Um, the site is also open for people uh, who want to use their private cars to reach the event. Um, uh, obviously, the, the roads leading up to Expo, there are multiple entrances to the Expo site. Uh, there is also parking that's been made available by Expo City uh, management to the visitors. Um, however, again, in line with the theme of the event, uh, which is around uh, you know, uh, you know, emission-free systems and, and uh, environmental protection, we highly encourage, again, people to use public transport and namely uh, the metro. As I said, it is the most convenient uh, way to reach the event. Um, we also need to mention that um, in three of the key metro stations in Dubai, which are Centerpoint, uh, Etisalat Station and Jabal Ali Station, we also offer park and ride facilities. So there are multi-story parkings there. People can actually reach those stations, park their cars and then use the metro to reach the event. So. Again, it's, it's by far the most convenient and the most uh, smart and sustainable way to reach the event. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest, it, you're not supposed to be burning fossil fuels if you're a, a COP28 delegate. So uh, certainly the free null cards uh, for getting them on the, uh, on the metro are the best way to travel. Uh, Ahmed Bahrosian, as ever, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a very busy man indeed, uh, not least around this time of the year. So thank you so much for coming on the agenda today. Ahmed Bahrosian, the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Agency at the Roads and Transport Authority. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. We are live here from the Omar Quain National Museum, uh, live in the historical walled garden here. And it is our warm-up to celebrate the UAE's National Day next week. Just a quick reminder of a competition that we're hosting at the moment. If you would like to win a water filter, it's your... I mean, it's just a great opportunity to reduce the amount of plastic in your life. Uh, we are giving one away. All you need to do, I'm trying to find the competition, actually. It's here somewhere. 
All you need to do is send us a message. Uh, it's about plastic. I cannot find what it exactly it is. Here we go. Less plastic. Just message us in the studio on 4001 or you can WhatsApp us on 04871 5500. It is a Danube by Milano home water filter, which uses a five-stage purification system to give you plenty of safe drinking water whilst also saving you money and uh, helping the environment. Text me now with your name, 4001 or WhatsApp 04871 if you want to be in with a chance of winning that competition. Right, time now for us to turn our attention to something completely different. Uh, in fact, it's an event that's going to be taking place across the Emirates. It's going to take in some of the most beautiful sites of this place we call home. And I'm joined now by Damien Reed, our motoring correspondent, also presenter of Motor Mania, which is on Dubai Eye every other Saturday, I believe at 10 a.m. Damien, is that correct? Welcome to the Enjadna. Morning, Georgia. Yeah, 10 10 to 12 on Saturdays and uh, lots going on at the moment. So, uh, yeah, big time for, for, for motoring and cars. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about this. Is it true that you get to go on it every year? Uh, so far, I've been lucky enough, yes. <laughs> so we'll be uh, taking part in the in the Miller Miller year again for Motormania. And uh, this time it goes across all seven Emirates, plus it crosses into Amman. Um, and just an unbelievable array of classic cars that... Uh, some that live here, some that have been hiding in, the, in in warehouses and garages and collections, but also some others that have been flown in and shipped in um, from museums across across the world. And uh, some amazing machinery that's, uh, well, some are priceless. Uh, some have uh, seven-figure sums, but they're, they're out and they're on the roads through the Emirates uh, for an unbelievable event the middle of the it's a little bit like us. We're out on the road at the moment, the Arabian Radio Network, except we don't get to do it in fancy cars and we certainly don't to get uh, celebrities joining out, flying out to join us. I understand that um, model-turned-racing-car driver Jodie Kidd will be joining the race this year. Are there any other well-known names and faces coming over? Yeah, there's a couple of uh, former F1 drivers taking part. Stephanie Johansson, former Ferrari and McLaren driver, will be... Uh, We'll be taking part in it as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we you know with uh, uh, model, male model David Gandhi took part in it last year. I think he might be coming back for a, have, a, have another crack at it this year. Uh, an amazing classic car guy, a guy called Simon Kidston, who uh, he, he, he broken the sale of the world's most expensive car last year, a Mercedes Erlenhardt 300 SLR for about 26 million euro or something like that. Um, he'll be back out. Uh, but Jodie Kidd is um, she's she's a fantastic lady. She's uh, massively into her motor racing. Raced for the Maserati factory team, the Trofeo series in in Italy, um, and is now doing the, the YouTubing thing. But uh, yeah, um, she started out actually on the top on Top Gear, uh, the British Top Gear show, doing uh, you know the, the the celebrity in the lap, and became addicted and got a racing license. And actually, is pretty pretty good. She's very good steerer, loves the cars. So uh, yeah, we're hoping to get a couple of interviews with these people. For, uh, for Dubai Eye when I'm out there. So I will be working, I promise you. It doesn't sound like work, I have to be honest. I want to know what is so good about the roads around the UAE and up into Oman, because it's being described as one of the most beautiful races on earth. I have to admit, I, I obviously haven't done enough driving around the Emirates to appreciate the system. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the, so, so the Mila Milia is an Italian road race that began in, in the 1930s through to 1957, and then it was recreated. It was a proper road race. It was 1,000 miles as fast as you can on public roads. And uh, I think that Sterling Moss 
set the all right outright fastest time of uh, of just just either ten hours. Um, but then it became a retrospective, it became a touring event, and it's uh, it's it is the greatest road race in the world. It goes from Rome down to Brescia and back to Rome across varying uh, regions through through Italy. I did it in nineteen. 19- 91 and 1994, um, an amazing event. And this is the first time that it's stepped offshore. So the UAE, the Middle East, is the first to get an offshore version of it. And so it takes in all the roads around the region. So it, it, it's going through every every emirate. Uh, last year, you know, we went into the mountains. We went to, to uh, uh, through 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 the wadis and up into uh, Jebel Jace and everywhere else, and down into Amman. Some amazing roads down through Oman as well, um, that we just don't get enough chance to, to go into. So really looking forward to that. Uh, and then we come out through Russell Kamer, Umar Quain. We do a couple of laps of the Yas Marina circuit uh, the, the day be- on the final day to finish in Abu Dhabi. Um, and then, of course, around the back roads here through Hatter and, and everywhere else. So there are some really, really good roads. Um, hard to find, so massive credit to the, to the team. The logistical team have gone out of their way to find these roads. Um, that can take us out there and, and, and go and explore the Emirates. And it was such a success last year with the, the visitors. Some have even left their cars here and they've said, I'm coming back and, uh, and we'll do it again. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic event. What's the date of it? We all need to look out for these cars as they come past. What date? It will be. Uh, I'm just, just looking up for it right now. But it's going to be, um, you've got me on this one. But I think it's the, is it around the 6th of December. I'm trying to think. Third, yeah, third to the seventh of uh, third to the seventh of December. Um, so it's it's uh, it, it's, it's going to take about five days to get through, and it should be sensational. Damien Reed, our motoring correspondent, also presenter of Motormania, your go-to car show on air every Saturday from ten a.m. Thank you very much for your time. It is now time for us to catch up on all the latest sports news, both on and off the pitch. Joining me with all those details is our sports editor, Chris McCarty. After the madness that was this weekend, so much sport for us to discuss the Cricket World Cup, the Las Vegas Grand Prix and the F1, the golf. There isn't an awful lot to discuss. I guess in football, international football ongoing, England, they drew 1-1 with North Macedonia last night. The big talking point from Euro 2024 qualifying, however, Italy, a nil-nil draw with Ukraine. That good enough to see the Azuri, the defending champions, lest we forget, celebrate for next summer's tournament in Germany. Of course, my beloved Scotland already there. Three cheers for Scotland and they will be joined. England are already qualified from Group C as group winners. Ukraine and Italy playing out a goalless draw last night to ensure that Italy will be there. Sadness for Ukraine. They will not reach Euro 2024. Elsewhere in golf, well, news overnight that the TGL, this new high-tech indoor league, it's been backed by Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy. It has been pushed back 12 months. It was due to launch to much fanfare in January of 2024. They've now pushed back the release date. They've blamed issues with the venue over in Florida. It all seems a little strange to me. We'll maybe talk about that in a little bit more detail after 7 o'clock in off-script extra time this evening. India, well, they're still smarting from their Cricket World Cup to defeat to Australia. I think uh, yeah, the misery will go on for a few days yet. And that gets you back up today with sport for another day.
That is Chris McCarty there, our sports editor, also presenter of your drive time show, Off Script, which is on air, of course, every day from 5 p.m. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10 a.m. till 1 p.m.